0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 27. Last week, I continued working my way through the history of the Philistines. In that episode, making it to the point in 1 Samuel, when the future King David, then still a boy, or maybe a young man, first encountered the Philistine giant Goliath. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen This week, I'm picking up at that part of the narrative in 1 Samuel, and pressing forward. So, let's get started. As the last episode ended, the young David had just convinced King Saul to let him go fight Goliath. And before pressing on, a quick reminder. Every day, for the past 40 days, Goliath approached the assembled Israelite army with a challenge. He taunted the Hebrews. Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, there was no telling if the Philistines planned, at least at that point, of living up to the challenge, if the Israelites found a way to defeat the giant warrior. And judging by King Saul's actions, he didn't either. Of course, he never said he would. In my mind, if he thought the challenge was real, he wouldn't have sent the young David to do the bidding of the Israelite army. Why bet the freedom of your nation on the almost impossible chance that this young boy could defeat a giant professional soldier? He knew the odds. We all knew the odds of David winning. That's why the story isn't just told some 3,000 years later, but is used as an analogy. Normal things don't become tropes that only last, but continue to hold the same meaning. It seems the only one who chose not to believe the odds was the one heading out to take on the boastful Philistine. Picking up the story in the text. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Remember that Saul was said to have been the tallest man in Israel, and that armor was typically custom-made to fit the body measurements of the soldier. If anyone in Israel had custom-fitting armor, it was certainly the tall king. Also take into account that David was still an older boy or a young man, not fully grown. Note that in the last episode, I mentioned that though the New Revised Standard and King James versions refer to Saul's armor as a coat of mail, in this case, the NIV said it was a coat of armor. It's currently believed that chainmail was not invented until several hundred years later. So, in this case, it was not likely that. Earlier in the chapter, the first two Bible translations called Goliath's armor mail too. While the NIV said it was scale armor, a much more likely type, given that had been around for a few centuries. As for the bronze helmet, those had been around for some time too. It's even said Goliath had a helmet of a similar material, despite the Philistines having some mastery over iron by this point. The text continues. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Though the text is silent, it's likely King Saul had his own leg greaves, similar to those worn by the giant. Those two would have been custom fitted to his tall frame, not likely to fit David, and it would have made walking at least awkward, probably difficult. Then David said to King Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he walked up to a place near the Philistine. Remember, this was occurring in the Ella Valley, in modern-day Israel. At that time, it was likely on the border between Judah and the Philistines. Nearly all valleys in the world, at their bottoms, the lowest point, have a creek, stream, or river. Rain falls on the hills and the mountains that surround the valley, and it has to go somewhere. Gravity carries it downhill, and eventually to flowing water of one form or another. In the Middle East, given the frequent droughts and less severe dry seasons, these creek beds are frequently dry, wadis, and in these wadis are river-polished stones of various sizes, plenty for David to choose from. With his shield-bearer leading the way, the Philistine giant walked closer to David and noticed that despite being boastful, and possibly seeing that it was a mere armorless boy, Goliath remained vigilant, as a professional soldier likely would. Though his bronze helmet certainly limited his vision, at least on his periphery, maybe more. So, he may not have gotten a good view of David, especially at a distance. Whichever it was, it didn't shut him up. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he taunted him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome. That's an interesting sentence. The giant insults him, though the actual word in two out of the three versions is that Goliath disdains him. The NIV says that Goliath despised him, and that makes more sense in the context. He wouldn't insult David because he was ruddy and handsome but he surely could despise him because of it. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, meaning the polytheistic pantheon of Philistine deities. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Remember, the Philistine was weighed down by his armor, and even when not, given his height, moving may have been difficult. David, though, was unarmored, and likely faster and more nimble. Whenever you're in an asymmetric battle, you have to use your advantages, and speed is certainly one. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. With that, David killed the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking him down. As a reminder, the text tells us that there was no sword in David's hand. This reminder was necessary given what happens next. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, grasped his sword, meaning Goliath's sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. Throughout all of this, no mention is made about what Goliath's shield-bearer is up to. Once Goliath fell, he likely ran off. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled too. I guess they really didn't plan on living up to what Goliath said they would do if he were beat. The army of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath in the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way to Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. I've covered Gath and Ekron in prior episodes as cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. Both were cities where the Philistines took the ark and then were hit by a plague of tumors. I probably should have mentioned this in one of those episodes, but some think the actual tumors inflicted on the people were hemorrhoids. There are so many jokes I could crack right now, and that's only one of them. Back to the text. The city Sherem possibly translates to two gates. It was an Israelite city, believed to be on a hilltop overlooking the Ella Valley, in the Judean hills. And given the mention and context, this location makes sense. After they were done pursuing the fleeing Philistines, the Israelites came back and plundered their camp. David didn't bother with plundering, as he had a better prize. He took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. He kept the giant's armor for himself in his tent. That little detail will come into play years later. At this point in the text, the story backs up a bit. This is one of the few examples where the biblical narrative isn't very linear, especially when viewed within the same story. That's not to say that parts don't repeat themselves in different places, like the Gospels of the New Testament, but that within a shorter story, this timeline jumps around a bit. Back in 1 Samuel. When Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire whose son the stripling is. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Those were gruesome times, and the text didn't try to gloss over it. In the next chapter, Saul lives up to his pledge and gives his daughter Michael to David to be his wife, making David his son in law. Moving along. Towards the end of 1 Samuel 18, Saul grows jealous of David, more specifically of the renown he has achieved by killing the giant, and sets out to have David killed, but not directly. Instead, he plans on sending David to fight the Philistines in battle after battle. And the plan backfired when the Philistines came out the battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his fame became very great. The text goes silent for just over a chapter, but the rage in Saul grows to the point that David flees with the help of his wife after Saul tried to kill him with a spear. David flees to the city of Nob, and the priest Ahimelech. At this point, he doesn't have a weapon on him, explaining that he left the royal palace in a bit of a hurry. The priest gives him Goliath's sword. No mention is made that it was too big for him to wield. Then one of the more interesting turn of events in the Old Testament narrative. David flees to the Philistine city of Gath, with the sword of the dead Philistine giant in his hands. The text reads, David rose and fled that day from Saul. He went to King Achish of Gath. The servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Do they not sing to one another of him? Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Each referring to the thousands of dead Philistines. And the song was found earlier in the text, and was one of the many reasons King Saul came to despise David. David took these words to heart, and was very much afraid of King Achish of Gath. So, he changed his behavior before them. He pretended to be mad when in their presence, and mad meaning mentally unstable. He scratched marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Pretty convincing. Pretty convincing. King Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Meaning he had no time for David and wasn't very concerned about him. And I'm going to pause here for a second to cover the little that is known about this Philistine king Achish. But before I do... Know that David doesn't stay in Philistia long, escaping to the cave of Adullam. As for King Achish, the name actually refers to two different Philistine rulers of Gath. This has led some to speculate that Achish isn't a name, but is instead a title, similar to King, or perhaps two people with the same name. What we're sure of is that Achish was the name used in the Old Testament for two Philistine rulers of Gath. It is perhaps only a general title of royalty, applicable to Philistine kings in general. And about these two kings. The first was a monarch, Achish the king of Gath. The one with whom David sought refuge when he fled from Saul. And that's why I'm bringing it up now. In Psalm 34, He was called Abimelech, which translates to the father of the king. And it's not really in the text of Psalm 34, as it occurs before the first verse, in the title, or sometimes called the superscription. Not to get too deep into that rabbit hole, but that's one of the nuances of the books, and more specifically, the chapter and verse numbering of our translations, This reference is found in both the New Revised Standard and NIV, but not the King James. It does give the set and setting for the chapter, and reads, Of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. This Achish, or Abimelech, take your pick, may be the same as Achish referred to a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 27, Here we're told that David went to the Philistine king of Gath and offered up his services. David stayed with Achish at Gath, he and his troops, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. No mention is made of his wife, Michael. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought for him. Pausing here for a second... So, it wasn't just David and the six hundred men, but all of their households too, likely well over a thousand to a few thousand people, unpausing. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your sight, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, so that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Pausing again, note that this account is much different than the prior, where David feigned being insane so that the Philistine king wouldn't think he was a threat. This time, he's presenting him as the loyal servant to the king. Loyal enough that he didn't want to stay in the capital of the small territory, where he might be seen as a threat to the ruler. And given he had 600 men, presumably warriors with him, he could have easily been viewed as a threat to the king's rule over the city and territory. And this city of Ziklag was somewhere in the Negev, probably to the southwest of territory held at the time by the tribe of Judah. When the Israelites came to control territory in Canaan, in Joshua 15, we're told that this was within Judah. Then, in chapter 19, it was part of Simeon. What's unclear, if this was allotted by Moses, or if these represented control at different points in time, or if there were even two cities with the same name, it also doesn't help that there has been no real positive identification of where actually this city is, though several different places have been proposed. Unpausing again. The length of time that David lived in the country of the Philistines was one year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and made raids on the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the landed settlements from Telam on the way to Shur and on the land of Egypt. The mention of the place named Telam is the only mention it warranted in the entirety of the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments at least in the New Revised Standard. It's not in this verse in neither the NIV nor King James. With the NIV reading, And David and his men went up, and invaded the Gershurites and the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were of the old inhabited of the land, as thou goest sure, even into the land of Egypt. And other than the location that can be supposed from this single reference, that it was on the way to Shur. Nothing is known about it. As for Shur, this city is thought to have been in the Nile Delta and warrant several mentions, from Abraham to the post-Exodus wanderings of the Israelites, to this mention with the future king David. Back in this story of David, we're told he struck the land, leaving neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep and the sheep the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing, and came back to Akish. When Akish asked, against whom have you made a raid today, David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the jeremyites or against the Negev of the Kenites. David left neither man nor woman alive to be brought back to Gath, thinking, they might tell about us, and say, David has done so and so. Such was his practice all the time he lived in the country of the Philistines. Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself utterly abhorrent to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So, David was deceiving the Philistine king, telling him he was attacking his own people, while instead attacking their mutual enemies. We're not told how the king never figured this out. Of course, David killing everyone in these towns helped. But a destroyed town in the enemy's territory doesn't go unnoticed. It also appears that while the Philistine king of Gath, Achish, trusted David to be loyal and believe his tales of his exploits, other Philistine leaders didn't do the same. As for the other king of Gath, known by the name of Achish, he appears in 1 Kings 2 and is described as Achish, son of Makkah. Given we know both the name of the king and his father, along with the general time period when he lived, we can see this was a different Akish. He was also not the son of the first one. It's been proposed that the second was probably the grandson of the first, which is one way to thread the needle and actually makes sense. There's also the proposal that when the later book of Kings was written, the scribe doing the recording didn't know the actual name of the Philistine king and substituted the title instead. The Old Testament isn't the only place where this king is named. There are also uncovered inscriptions found in the city of Ekron and dating to about the 7th century BC. Given that it was an Ekron and not Gath, and Ekron was probably ruled by a different Philistine leader. This seems to point to the word Akish being more of a title, possibly. A very similar name has been found on Assyrian inscriptions of the same time period. So, the name appears at least in three separate sources and in the same general region. In that regard, it's pretty certain this Akish did really exist, or somebody holding the title. Beyond that, all that's really known about him is found in the Old Testament. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue the journey through the history of the Philistines. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes, You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.